I'm Dr. Michelle Thaller, and this is Orbital Path, a show from PRX about the cosmos and our place in it. So a couple of months ago, I gave a talk at a TEDx event in Baltimore, and one of the other speakers was Dr. April Erickson, a senior engineer at NASA. Many times the astronauts have looked back at the Earth and they've said, they see no boundaries, they see no borders, they see no walls. I want you to reach inside yourself and remove those boundaries. I want you to think about how to embrace the differences and the capabilities of each and every other person around you. Now, April is entirely correct. When you look at the Earth from space, there are no borders, there are no walls. But some people sure seem to think that there are. And in fact, we fight wars over them. We kind of live and die by these boundaries. And it seems to me that April grew up surrounded by boundaries. She was a young African-American girl growing up in the public housing projects of Brooklyn. And she decided that she wanted to become a scientist, an engineer. She never really perceived that there were boundaries that other people assumed there were. I wanted to talk to April about her youth and how she got involved in science, and she's always been a tremendous inspiration to me. So I went to go visit her at her office at the Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. So April, I first became aware of you pretty soon after I got to Goddard. Uh, you were one of the, uh, the sort of senior managers in the engineering directorate, and you're somebody that I thought, wow, this is a fabulous person I want to get to know. You have an amazing background, and, and it's one of the things that inspires me. Uh, you know, you were a young African-American kid growing up in Brooklyn, and fairly early on, you decided you wanted to do something to do with space. How did that journey start? It's interesting. I mean, for me, when you, people ask these questions, you look back, right? You don't realize how long the journey has been. But yeah, it started off at the age of six where my mom put me on that school bus to go across Brooklyn. She sent me off to a predominantly Caucasian school. And I was very fortunate that a parent brought a TV to school. You know, being in a more affluent area, brought a little black and white TV to school, which dates me a little. And I was able to see men go to the moon. Never before had so many people been attuned to one event at one time. The world waited, curious, wondering, aware, like a sleeper wakened in the night by a faraway sound, a moment sensed, more than understood. And I thought, hmm, that's something I might be interested in doing. I never really put it off too far as that was my dream, but it was something now that was part of my consideration. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. I revisited that thought later again in junior high school, winning science fair competition. I won second place. And uh, I made my first instrument, which was a glass milk bottle barometer, with my grandfather. And, yeah, dating again, right? Because hey. glass milk, right? Who gets milk in glass? At that time, we still did. Uh, my grandfather did. And he helped me to build this barometer that I made key measurements with. I calibrated it to the radio station. And then I talked about the impact to society. Like, this would be one of the measurements for, you know, telling the weather. And I began to have this love at that time for earth science. I was actually in an earth science class. And I think... 
that that was the first sort of taste again, revisiting how strong I really like science and I liked math. So many things that you've already told me involve family, Mm -hmm. right? You talked about your grandfather building a barometer, and then you talked about your mother putting you on this bus. It it seems like you have been blessed Mm -hmm. with having an incredibly supportive family. I am. I am. And that other grandfather in Cambridge, he was the one that would take me down in the basement and say, kid, you don't need to go to the, the hardware store for anything. Everything you need is right down here. And he would show me how to do circuits and um, put up wallpaper. So he was the real hands-on guy. And um, I helped him by learning, you know, sort of the practical skills of engineering. He was actually the chief engineer for the um, Sheraton Commander Hotel, which is right in Harvard Square. And he did that job into his you know, early 70s. And then the other grandfather was an engineer for the uh, metro system in New York. And I remember going to see the big, huge boards that shows all of the train system. And I would go, I went to his job. So that's what I knew really as an engineer. A train engineer was really what I knew as an engineer. And um, junior high school, I wore a locomotive hat almost every day in school. (laughs) (laughs) So it's interesting to see sort of how that kind of wove through my life. Nobody said to you, you're a girl, you shouldn't be fixing this circuit, you shouldn't be making this. Exactly. No one ever did, and they always included me. So that was really cool. The only thing I missed, which was the grandfather in New York, he was all into the Boy Scouts, so I never got to do that with him, but I was a Girl Scout. And I think those influences of seeing him and working and building things with, as well as my mother, my mother was fabulous with instantly pulling out a drill and, and fixing something, or I, I, you know, jump right in there and help. I think those influences were really big in my life, and I didn't realize it till I got older. You know, how do we get all of the young African-American girls in Brooklyn to say, I want to be an engineer? So it's funny because I had that thought not too long ago. It's a challenge when you look across our country at the fact that we don't have senior level courses of like physics or chemistry in all the schools or the higher levels of math, pre-calculus on up through calculus. For me, I didn't get a chance to take calculus before I left high school and I was at a private school. The same thing happened to me, although different. I, I was from a, a fairly rural area. I mean, there, there was you know, a small town, Wisconsin, and I got admitted into Harvard. And I, I went to Harvard without the preparation, without calculus, without physics, you know, and calculus, all of that. And I just got blown out of the water. Mm-hmm. And it, it would have been so easy for me to say, well, I don't belong here. Now, now you must have had some pretty significant barriers. I mean, I, I, the, the stories of support, I, I'm so glad you had that. But, but what were some of the times where you had to, you had to push your way through something? Yeah. There were definitely times where I didn't feel like I fit in, but I didn't let that bother me. I don't fit in on a lot of things. Like, I was the only girl all the time playing sports, right? And when I was in middle school, I was in this program, which was really geared toward students excelling in the STEM tracks. Now, in those tracks, I was the only African-American student, not even just woman, but the only African-American student. And the challenges there were that I didn't have other kids to study with. I didn't have anybody to go home with and study with. So I learned to, you know, take that solitary path a lot of the time. I felt that I could do it because my mother was encouraging all the time, saying, yeah, you can do it. I was very focused and determined to make it happen. 
when I entered the the discipline of Aero Astro, I was again the only African American female. There were several other African American males, but they didn't have quite the same challenges because they they had taken Calculus Three at that point. It would seem to me that race had to have been an issue at some point. There had mm-hmm. to have been challenges you faced. You know, how how did race affect you? Living in the hood, the school that I was attending for kindergarten did not have the resources the same that a predominantly white school. So there was, again, those initial challenges, and many of us are aware of what schools in different neighborhoods experience or have. And so going to a school that was predominantly white, I think it offered some advantages because, one, I learned that when I was home, I sort of was in this community and culture, and then yet I also had to transcend to other communities and cultures. So I think that that was actually an asset of being able to communicate with people across cultural boundaries or barriers. And I think that some people will recognize that um, because minority people of color have to transcend into a particularly STEM-based disciplines, one where English is always spoken, right? That's a, that's a challenge for, for um, some other groups and members. Then there is the fact that it is a white male-dominated career path. I think that the browning of STEM is necessary. The browning of STEM makes people realize that they have to be a little bit more embracing of people of different cultural backgrounds and that we all offer the perspective. I, you know, I've often said when diversity is introduced, it gives an opportunity for things to collide and innovation to grow through that collision. I would say there have been negative times even here that I realize that people are not quite as respectful because you're an African-American woman of color. When you look at our center, the third largest population is African-American women, but the majority of them were in more of an administrative supporting role and not necessarily technical or science role. And so there often been times when I'm at the copier machine and someone would ask for help because they just happened to come in the office and thought I was the secretary. My friends love to say doctor, <laughs> you know, to point out when people would say, are you a summer intern? Because I, I think I'm well-preserved and so I look younger. But they would say, you know, is this your summer intern? And they say, oh, no, this is Dr. April Erickson and she does blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. So I do change people's mind or open up their sort of perspective of what capabilities of people of color are. And uh, yeah, that dir goes a long way. So you have a doctorate in engineering. What, what was your specialty? What was the dissertation on? So I have, um, my undergrad was in aeronautical, astronautical engineering. So I sp- focused more on the astronautical side. And many people try to understand what that really means. They're most in tune with astronauts. So the, yes, it's, we're talking about 
products in space, deliveries in space. And then when I went on to graduate school at Howard University, it's a mechanical engineering aerospace option. So I was in the mechanical engineering department and focused on applications relating to space. So my research was the structural dynamics and control of large space structures. So how do they move? The flexibility becomes a factor on large space structures like the International Space Station, and that's pretty much the size that we were applying that to. But then controlling that motion um, is very important, in particular when you look at the realm of NASA. We have uh, spacecraft in orbit, we want to be able to control that motion so that we can take good observations and collect good data. So I often liken it to, the, there was a commercial for a video camera that had a stabilized optical system so that if you're walking along and you're bouncing a little bit, the system had uh, ability to kind of damp out those effects. And that's what we would do with the control methods that I would design uh, mathematically and uh, simulate on the computer. And then I, when I came to Goddard, I actually began to apply that, but more so on a smaller structure because we don't do the large space structures like International Space Station here anymore. We do that at other facilities. But I was able to make that transition, and I was able to control spacecraft that went all different places in our science sort of realm. So all the spacecraft you'd worked on, all the projects, what, what are some that stand out as particularly cool? So some of the initial ones, because just because you're cutting your teeth, like the X-ray Timing Explorer. The scientific objective of the X-ray Timing Explorer, or XTE, is to make temporal and spectral studies of celestial X-ray sources in the 2 to 200 keV spectrum. XTE will also perform continual all-sky surveys to acquire long-term plots of source intensities and to observe transient phenomena. Let me say that the X-ray Timing Explorer it was an astrophysics mission. X-ray particles are examined by astrophysicists all the time. They understand and learn about our universe through that understanding. At that time, they were looking at like binary stars, neutron, white dwarfs, you know, things that are not necessarily my area of expertise, but I was helping to keep the spacecraft in the correct position orientation and location as it orbited around our Earth. As I transitioned through several different missions, um, I ended up on WMAP, which is Wilkerson Microwave Anisotropic Probe. That was another mission that had a unique concept of measuring temperature. A brand new discovery from, from these observations is that we have detected the era where the very first stars in the universe ignited. So those were unique opportunities to work with groundbreaking science. They were able to validate the Big Bang Theory, that, you know, that temperature, seeing that explosion and the temperature shifts, that the universe is expanding. So we need more April Ericsons, right? You know, we, we need more young African-American girls in Brooklyn in the project saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is not an easy thing to solve. I mean, how do we put more kids on this path? I mean, how do we get the barriers out of their way? Seeing even my own daughter in her STEM school, we have to make it fun. We have to make it engaging. And I think that there are times when we need to really revisit the way we teach curriculum in school, beginning to teach our students how to do sequential and logical thinking processes because that's one of the things I see for the future that we need to have computer science embedded in our educational programs from the time they're in kindergarten. And I see some teachers doing it very effectively 
they are going to have to know how to program not just in our STEM disciplines, but in almost everything we do. You know, big data is this thing we talk about. Well, how do you use it and how do you get the data you need? Well, you're gonna need to be sequential and logical because you're talking to a computer. And as we meld the two, you know, our computers are becoming more and more friendly. I, I mean, I use Siri all the time, right? My daughter Googles stuff all the time. But there is going to be a time when they need to program and be able to use those, those um, tools to help them do their own homework and to come up and solve problems. And so those are some of the things that I think we could do with just about any child, not just the streets of Brooklyn, but the rural countrysides as well. Across our world, we're going to have to engage everyone. I think a fine example of how we partner and work together across cultures, across disciplines, is something like the International Space Station. You know, we had 17 different countries initially, and there are so many, many more that have contributed with experiments from the young school kids to our scientists across the world. It's going to take all of us to be actively engaged to get to a place like Mars. If we're going to accomplish something as huge as going to Mars, all of the countries on the planet have to work together. We can't do this just as one country. We have to do this as a planet. But it goes deeper than that. In order to do something as spectacular as that, we have to bring down the boundaries in our culture. Everyone has to be involved. The thing that really gets me about April is that she didn't perceive the barriers that others assumed were there. She was a young African-American girl in the projects in Brooklyn. And yet she was along for the ride with NASA as we went to the moon. And yes, it was white men that were going to the moon, but she felt part of that common humanity. So April didn't think the barriers were there, and in fact, they turned out not to be. And if we can actually do this right, we can get to a place like Mars, where for the time being, there aren't any barriers. And maybe there never will be. has been commanded by Lauren Ober. John Barth and Genevieve Sponsor co-pilot from the PRX Mothership. Jim Briggs orchestrated the theme music. Special thanks to the studios of WAMU in Washington, D.C., Planet Earth. We are supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information at sloan.org. And I'm Dr. Michelle Thaller, a little bit of dead stardust, signing off for now. <laughs>